Let me tell you what we started talking about last week in the series called Primal. The series called Primal is all about what God called, what Jesus called the great commandment. And what we're calling in this series the the primal commandment because of its first importance. And you don't have to turn there because we're going to be somewhere else. But in Mark chapter 12 is where we get this when Jesus began to state. He said, uh, the most important one, answered Jesus. And he said, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And here's the commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And with all your strength. And we began talking about last week and unpacking what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And we started talking about the primal problem with us many times is that, is that Christians are more, more known for what we're against than what we're for. And, uh, and we began diving into the temptation that we have to ask what's wrong with this generation. But really that's the wrong question. The right question is what's wrong with the church and the answer to it that's tough to recognize and tough to understand and grasp but that's real is that we're not great at the great commandment that's the answer to the problem we're not great at it in fact we're not even good at it and we've got to be great at the great commandment and that's what this series is all about in these four weeks we're going over last week we talked about the heart of christianity what what that means is is primal compassion today we're going to be talking about the soul of christianity which in essence is primal wonder the mind of christianity which is primal curiosity and then the strength of Christianity, which is primal energy. If you know anything about scripture, the very first book of the Bible is all about creation. Like the very first few chapters of Genesis is all about creation. And really we view God as an artist. And he, in this, in this um, passage of scripture, in, in the very first book, when you see God as an artist, you see him unveiling his masterpiece, not only in creation, but in creation in us. God steps back at the end of each creation day And looks at his creation, looks what he's made. And if you remember what he says, he says, God saw that it was good. And I think that is so intriguing that that the simple refrain, like after each and every day, every day up until the sixth day, God steps way back to check out his, his full creation and his own masterpiece. And he looks at the scope of creation, looks at the scope of everything he's done. And his response is that God saw all that he had made and said, this is very good. God was in awe of his own creation. His primal reaction of wonderment to his own work. It, is there anything more natural for any of us than unadulterated awe in response to the creator and his creation? I mean, if you think about it, is any emotion more primal than wonder? To be in awe, to be in wonder. And what we're really doing more, more than anything else is we're really loving God with our soul when we're in awe of him, when we're in wonder of him. And that's something that he demonstrated from the very first book of the Bible. But that's something that the church, we really do need to rediscover what it means to be in awe of him, what it means to be, to be just full of wonderment of him. Our lack of wonder really is a lack of love in us. And so is it possible that we've given God this passing glance instead of this um, opportunity to truly hallow his name? Is it possible that we've settled for a God who's given us little restraints and a God that we've accepted in a logical mind instead of the God who can do immeasurably more than we logically can realize or imagine. Is it possible that we've studied this God of logic more than we've studied this God of wonders? And, I, and that's what today's all about. We're gonna study this in, in this passage um, in Luke. If you can go ahead and turn there in, in Luke chapter seven. 
to dig into the soul of Christianity, you'll discover primal wonder. When you get past all the traditions, we talked about this a bit last week, all the traditions, all the institutions. When you get past all the creeds and the canons and you get past with, with, with everything, you get to the bottom and you're left with this raw wonder that's beyond logic, that's beyond words. And it can't be reduced, our faith can't be reduced to, to logical constraints of your brain. It can't be reduced to 26 letters of an alphabet. It can't be reduced to that because God defies logic. Wonder defies logic, wonder defies words and anything else or anything else when you think of Christ is really just dry religion. And that's not what he's about, that's not who he is. If a loving God who loves you with all of your heart and who loves you with all of himself, if his heart breaks for certain things, then you would hope that your heart breaks for the same things that God does. If your God is in wonder and in awe of his own creation and of salvation and of all that, then you would expect your heart and your soul to be in wonder, a soul that's flooded with the glory of God like we sang about this morning, a soul that's just flooded with with awe of his beauty and of his majesty, a soul that hallows God, that hallows God above anything else. In the Western world, we make this distinction between knowing God and, and, and doing what he says. And, and there's that distinction in, with anything, really, knowing and doing. Like, we know stuff, but we don't necessarily follow it by doing things. And there's no distinction like that in Scripture, especially in the Jewish t- tradition. Knowing was doing, and doing was, was knowing. And if you didn't do it, then you didn't really know it. And if you didn't know it, of course you didn't do it. So knowledge wasn't enough to them. Trust must be translated with your, with your life. And so my question leading into this passage is, what if, just think with me, what, what if every time we came across a verse that told us to do something, if we thoughtfully and we prayerfully figured out a way to translate that into your life? How amazing would that be? What would the church look like that, that if we consistently, creatively, courageously acted on each and every verse? What if we turned every verse into this holy experiment? I've only been skiing one time, like snow skiing. And it was when I was in seventh grade in youth group. And I don't know anything about skiing. And it was, it was obvious then. Like, I didn't know how to put skis on. Like, I'm from Mississippi, okay? I mean, like, we don't know nothing about snow skiing, okay? And so we, we, our, our youth pastor took us, and I forget where we went, but maybe Gatlinburg with a fake snow. I don't know where we went. But anyway, it was like I was in awe of this. And I was like, man, this is going to be incredible. So we went, and, and, uh, and I saw, you know, they have the little bunny slopes, which that was a huge bunny to me. I'm like, man, dude, that's huge. I ain't doing that either. But we're just trying to figure out what this is, and all of us were just in wonder of, of how to do this. And, and I got to the point to where, you know, they, they said, well, you put them on like this and you do this. And no, 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 you need to do this and wear this and put this down. Okay, and then borrow this from us. And, and so I started feeling a little bit like a skier. I, I started feeling like, man, I think I kind of know this. I've never skied one time in my life. And so I just start, you know, we're waiting in line for, for certain equipment. And, uh, and I start talking as if I know. And I don't know what came over me. But as a seventh grader, I start being like, Slopes look pretty good today, don't they? To these other people, and they're like, yeah, they look good. You know, like all these skiers around me. And, and I start acting like a skier. And I'm thinking, you know, we, we're on the lift, and I'm, I'm asking them, how do, you, how do you get off this lift? You know, I'm asking my buddies, and they're like, well, you ski off. How messed up is that? If you don't know how to ski, you're supposed to, you jump off the lift to ski to do something that you've never done before. And so I, I'm trying to play it cool, and it became obvious to everyone around me. As soon as I jumped off, if you know anything about skiing, to slow down, what do you do? You kind of cross them a little bit, right? To, to speed up, what do you do? You just keep them straight? 
yeah, I didn't get that. I thought I'm just supposed to keep them straight. And so I come off, I'm just glad to land on my skis. And I just start going, and my skis are going straight. And I'm like, I'm not falling, I'm not falling. But I'm getting faster and faster. And I can't stop this. People are like, old ladies, ah, get my kids out of the way. And people are diving for real. I'm not, well, maybe not the old lady, but everybody for real. There are people diving out of the way. And I'm just going through there. There's the guys in the, in the orange, you know, like, things which means that they can dominate you because they own this lift pretty much and and they're like whistling me and you know they're waving stuff at me and I'm like I I don't know what to do and I'm just going 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 and by the end of it I just crash and I crash into one of those men in orange suits and my ski catches him in a place that ought not be mentioned in here and he tags my tag he puts an x across my tag to say if this happens one more time Son, you're out of here. And it became obvious, like when I was in line with people, slopes look nice today, don't they? Yeah, yeah, they look nice. We're on the same level. It became very, very obvious when my skis touched the snow that we were not on the same level at all. Like we are not together at all. Why would I tell you that? First of all, you need to know that uh, it's good for humility to tell stories like that. But number two, all of us, Every one of us have really spent a huge portion of our lives, either in the past or now, or you will in the future, where we are at the bottom of the slopes, where you're at the bottom of of life and you're projecting an image to the rest of us. You're projecting an image to everyone else. You're playing a part. You're creating what we're going to call this morning. You're creating an illusion for people to see when they pass by our lives that's not truth about you, that's not really what's going on in your soul. And we, we feel like we need to do that to get the appreciation of others, to, to be on the same playing field as others. And, and it's not true. Some of us, we have marriages, and on the outside, everybody thinks it's great. And on the inside, you know that it is extremely not healthy. You know it's an illusion. It's, your marriage is hanging on by a thread because deep issues are going, going unresolved, and the soul of this marriage is dying. But on the outside, it looks fine. On the outside, it looks together, and there's this deep issue to tackle. Whatever that looks like in your life, whatever issue, you we all do this it's not just you we all feel like we need to put on some sort of illusion for everyone else some people create an illusion for their friends some people create an illusion for their parents some people create an illusion for a youth pastor to see as a teenager to see that that I've got it together Mr. Youth Pastor Man and, and this teenager really really does not but the truth about all of us is that some portion of our lives we've created an illusion we've created something at the bottom of the slopes for people to see that's inconsistent with what's going on in our hearts, with what's going on in our souls. And so here's the question, and it's a simple question. Why do we do that? I mean, why do we do that? Why do you spend so much energy, so much effort creating an illusion that really isn't the truth, it really isn't you? It really isn't the way you live. I think part of the reason is that we bought into this lie that's the worst possible thing that can happen to you is for people to know the truth. That you think that that is the worst thing that can happen. So I'm not going to fess up to what's going on. I'm not going to face it. I'm going to deal with that stuff later because that is the worst possible thing for people to know that I really struggle. I really sin. I'm not a mistaker. I'm a sinner. And and the rest of them seem to have it together. But my marriage doesn't. My, My kids don't. I don't. And I struggle and I can't fess that to anybody else. And I think we bought into that lie. That there's just a few people on this entire planet that could really understand where you're at in your situation. 
And while it's true that it's going to be challenging, while it's true that there may be consequences, there may be issues to deal with, you've got to take courage and have honest conversations while you're trying to dig through the past rather than ignore the past, rather than ignore what's really you. That's not the worst thing that can happen. Some of you think that, and it's not true. There's a far greater danger that if you're just cool with staying at the bottom of the slopes, pretending with our lives, we forfeit the central truth that Jesus Christ came for you. And he came for me. We forfeit that thought that we need him, that we're dependent on him. Because if you can forfeit living out your faith, if you can forfeit living out your truth, then you're forfeiting this this life-changing power, this life-changing grace and mercy that the living God has in your life. And when you forfeit that, you lose. You don't gain anything. You lose. We don't gain a thing no matter how much you think you're even tricking yourself, how much you think that you're even you know, confusing yourself, you're forfeiting everything when you pretend with your life. There's a far greater way to live than that. And that's what we're gonna talk about this morning. Today we're gonna talk about an illusionist, this woman in, in this passage we're gonna deal with in Luke, this woman who has some huge issues. And this lady knows that she has huge issues. The community around her knows about her huge issues. And we're about to see that Jesus knew and knows all along that she has huge issues. But the woman does something that the vast majority of us in this room, in our church, in the community, in life would never be willing to do. She faces up to the illusion that she's putting on. She faces up to it to Jesus and leads us to discover some amazing primal truths about the soul and the wonderment and the awe of who we have the capacity to be like in Christ. So as we dig into the scripture, I've got to get you to think about one question just as we lead up to it. Not to think about it later, not to think about it tomorrow. It's not something to dwell on it like some of us do. You know, I'm, I'm going to just let that sink in later. No, no, no. This is for you right now. This is a question you're going to have to answer before the end of this service. And the question is this. Will you have the courage to do? what this woman is about to do. Will you have the boldness and the audacity to say, I don't really care what anybody else thinks except for Jesus. For you to say, I'm gonna follow this lady's lead in scripture and I'm gonna be honest and I'm gonna be real. And if we'll do that, if we'll, if we'll, we'll live a life like that, we'll discover a central characteristic of Jesus that's primal and we'll begin to be this candidate for, for the power of his presence in our lives, for the grace that's abundant and the beauty of who he really is that made him in awe of himself. It will put you in wonderment and in awe of your relationship with Jesus. And so Luke chapter seven, we're gonna break this down a little bit by little. Luke chapter seven, verse 36 says this. It says, now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. And so he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table, which Stop there. I love this about Jesus. I love that it seems like every time he's invited to a party, every time he's invited to go and be with someone, he goes ready to witness to them, ready to witness to people about why he's on earth, why he's here, who God is. And here's our our two characters that we'll get right from the get-go. We've got Jesus, right, the Holy Son of God, reclining at the table with Simon, who's our second character. Simon's this respected religious leader of the day. He's got it all together. And we're about to be introduced to character number three, of our story. So verse 37 starts off like this. It says, when a woman who had lived a sinful life, and Luke says, I'm not gonna tell you her name, I'm not gonna tell you what she's done, but this lady's got major issues. She's got some serious constraints. And when she comes to town, the baggage of her past follows her. That's who this lady is. This is a woman that when she walks by, people say to each other, listen, have you heard the latest? Have you heard the latest of who this is? This is a girl who's lived a life that's become a reputation 
in the community. So we have these three characters, three people, one of whom that doesn't really seem to belong. Remember Sesame Street? Like, I mean, this is just where I'm at in life, so bear with me. But you, you know Sesame Street and those things where it's like they throw three things up on the screen and like which one of these don't fit and it's like, you know, apple, orange, and a skateboard and you want to answer because you're feeling like, I know this, I got it. And then it's for your kids and you're like, okay, I'm sorry, I'm a moron. I'm, you know, all that, it's, it's the same thing. Like it's obvious there's this Jesus, the savior of the world, an extremely religious leader, and this lady whose past follows her around everywhere. Which one does it fit? Same situation in this passage. She doesn't belong here. She doesn't belong in this environment. She discovers, when people like her discover this truth about Jesus, that there's this boldness that begins to come out of them. And many of you have this, that there's this boldness when you understand how Jesus views you. There's this boldness inside of you that wants to to approach him and wants to be with him. And so we begin it when a woman who lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume. She doesn't leave because she's the odd man out. She doesn't cop out of that. She senses something about Jesus and she begins to get incredibly bold. She begins to get really, really courageous. And so when she came in, because of who she was, she wasn't invited. You know, this this tension really began to rise at the dinner party. And I don't know if you've ever thrown a party where somebody showed up that you didn't invite. There's that awkwardness that may be a part of that. Um, you know, when it's weird, it's like, why did they come? How did they know? Why, how, what? There's this confusion that's all over your face and all over them and a bit of awkwardness. I'm sure that was there. And so regardless, here she is, this uninvited guest. And having said that, like, it, life was a little bit different back, back then because in Jesus' day, it wasn't crazy for an uninvited guest to just show up um, what they would do is just stand along the wall, stand along the outskirts in the shadows, in the darkness. When everyone else was doing their thing, who was invited, they're a part of this thing. Everyone else would stand along the walls and just listen in on the dinner party. They weren't part of the meal. They weren't part of the conversation. They wouldn't interject and talk. Everyone else would do that. It wasn't incredibly odd for these people to just stand up against the wall and just observe in the shadows and just listen in. But even that's not what she did. It goes on, it says uh, that she didn't just step out into the dinner party. It says in verse 38, And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping. This is odd for the passage. This is odd for their day. That she stepped out of the shadows. Listen to this. This, Catch this for you. She stepped out of the shadows, into the light, into what's going on, into the party, into where everyone else is. And she steps out of that, right behind Jesus, weeping. Not just saddened. Luke wants you to know that she isn't just like little soft girly cries. Like this woman is sobbing. Her tears are falling on Jesus. Her tears are falling on his feet. And there's this great, great, great picture you see of humility in her and who Jesus really is. You're going to begin to grasp this. I don't know if any of you are movie people and you've seen A League of Their Own. You know, and there's that famous line from that movie that said... There's no crying in baseball. You know that part of that movie? In this passage, you gotta think about how awkward it is for this lady to walk in here and to be a part, but then to step out of the shadows and to be a part, and even more, to begin weeping and to be a part of it like this. There is extreme awkwardness. And there's extreme uh, bitterness in in, in the Pharisee's heart in this and and anyone else that was a part of that. And this is the question that I, I began asking when I read this passage. Why is she crying? Why is this woman weeping? Why is she crying even more than that? Why is she sobbing? Why is this woman just just weeping her eyes out? Why is she so devastated? And I have to think that part of it has to do with her past, her past regret, 
the pain that's there, the things that she's done that she probably shouldn't have done, the things that she's known for, her reputation, the thing that the people in that room know of her, the way she's been treated and how wrong that's been, how, how filthy that lifestyle must be, and how horrible you must feel the way people would treat her. All of that has to be part of her tears, but I don't think it's the primary reason for her tears. The primary reason is in verse 38 at the latter part of it. I want you to just keep reading with me. When it says she began to to wet his feet with her tears, then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. And you can't miss this, that this is one one of the most remarkable, beautiful, powerful scenes of worship and just primal wonder in the entire pages of the Bible. This is a woman who's not just crying over her past, but there's something about Jesus that has caused her to come into this place and bow at his feet and to worship before him. She is in awe of this Messiah. She is awestruck and and bewildered and in wonderment of him. Something amazing happened in this moment because as she steps out of the shadows in this humble way, she humbles herself at his feet, revealing who she really believes him to be revealing who she really is herself before all these people. She didn't care about anybody else anymore. She didn't care what they thought. And Jesus exchanged that humility with grace. And that's powerful. And that leaves me in awe. She exchanged her own boldness for Christ's forgiveness of her. She exchanged all of her courage with unconditional love and grace that he bestowed on her and so because she brought with everything in her all her baggage everything she had she just brought who she was there was no illusion she was real she was exactly who she was and she brought that and that leaves us in this primal bit of wonder and awe and the whole story leads us to this central truth that I want us to get that Jesus came for the real you not the fake you He didn't come for your illusion. He came for you, the real me, not the illusion of me. He died for the reality of what's really going on, all the mess and all the junk that's in me, what's really going on inside of me, not the illusion that I pretend to be me. He came for the real thing. God the Father brought Jesus out of the tomb for the real you, for the real me, not the illusion that we had behind. And listen, Scripture pounds this over and over and over. This truth is, is set in stone throughout Scripture. Paul said it best when he said, when I'm weak, he's strong. When I'm at my weakest point, then I know he's at his strongest. And so over and over, the Bible says, it's okay to be real because the reality of you is why there is a cross. The reality of you is why I came. And how do you know this? Because the illusion of you and me, if I'm, if I'm honest with you this morning, the illusion, I don't even need Jesus if the illusion of me is real. Because in the illusion of you that you put on the people, you don't need him. You can handle everything all on your own. You don't need a, a bloody and battered cross. You don't need grace. You don't need mercy. But the real you, the real me, we need grace. And I desperately need a savior. And it's primal when we begin to be in wonder of that. When I really br- begin to bring my real self, I know that I really, really, really need him. More than anyone else in this room. I feel like I need him. And I'm in desperate need for grace. And I know that that should be like the simple concept. Jesus came for the real you, not the fake you. Bottom line, that's it. But I've been in church all of my life. I've been in church in the South and in the North and seen the majority of churches just buying into the myth that you can live out an illusion for God and it be okay. And if we never fess up to who we really are, Jesus will always be, listen to me closely, he will always be a historical figure to you 
by the way you live. By the way you live, it'll be an illusion and he'll just be a historical figure. God's word will never be anything more than a history book to you. Something that you should honor by listening to, honor by having a copy of in your house. And you will live your life, your entire life as an illusion. Your soul, your soul will be empty. Everything in you will be fake. And that's where this passage meets you. And if you don't, Get this today. You really can't go any further with Jesus. If you can't grasp this, he came for what's really going on inside of you. Then he can't go anywhere else with him. That's all he wants. That's all he cares about. He wants the real you before anything else. In fact, we're not going to go any further in this passage because you've got to get this. And the way I see it, you've got three options this morning. You've got, you've got three options of, of confronting primal wonder, primal awe. How do I really confront that part of loving God completely? To love the Lord your God means this. It means this in a way. And so the first two of these three things I'm going to tell you, I'm just going to tell you straight up, they don't work. Everything points you. To the last thing, but most of society lives in one of these two arenas. And number one, here it is, that you have the option to deny that you even have an issue. You have that option. I'm just going to deny it altogether. That part of the reason you play this denial game is because you compare yourself to others. At least I don't do what she does. At least I don't behave the way he does. And here's the problem with denial. The problem with denial is that it doesn't deal with the issue. It doesn't deal with who you really are. It just festers. It just grows. The soul of who you are has an issue that's preventing you from being the man or the woman that God's called you to be. How do I love the Lord my God with everything in me? Well, this is part of it. And you can't deny that you have an issue. Even the smallest issue is a huge issue to your heavenly father. You can deny it all you want to, but it's big to him. And if you do that, you'll live at the bottom of the slope all of your days. So, but that's an option. You can deny that you even have an issue. Number two, You can just self-destruct in your secret and in your silence. You can do that. You can hide and you can pretend. You can beat yourself up. I can't believe I struggle with that. Nobody else struggles with that. I can't believe it. I'm just going to beat myself up in secret and in silence. And you can do that. That's part of it. And if you do it, this is why you're incredibly exhausted all the time. This is going to lead you to be so tired with everything in your life. Spiritually, you will be drained all the time because God didn't create you to do this by yourself. God didn't create you to be fake. You're never as alone in your soul as when you're left alone with your secrets. When you find yourself in that spot, how lonely is that? How desperate do you feel? How alone and isolated do you feel in the dark, hidden, secret place of your life? That's why you're so tired today because some of you are struggling with with being real with yourself. And I'm just gonna hide this. I'm beating myself up because I struggle with these things, but I'm gonna be silent. I'm gonna be secret about it because, because nobody else struggles. Nobody else can understand. Nobody else has a marriage like this. And so I'm just gonna struggle like this and, and, and you're gonna spend a lot of energy on an illusion that isn't even who you wanna be. For other people to see a fake you. We could do either one of those two options, but neither, neither of them work. Neither of them, neither of them are God-ordained. And there's this third option that I want you to grasp that's where we need to be. And it's the option that the woman took in this passage. It's the option that we're gonna take, I hope, to step out of the shadows into the light and bring who you really are to the Savior. To be in a state of bewilderment. To be in a state of awe of his cross. And he, just the same, will meet you the same way he did with her. Will meet you with love. Will meet you with grace. And will meet you with forgiveness. And so the third option is just simply to step out of the shadows. That's the third option. To step out of the shadows. Like, I'm not going to be fake anymore. I'm going to be real with him. I'm going to give him everything I have. Everything I have. 
And here's what happens when you bring what's in secret into the light. And this is big. It loses, it, it makes you lose much of the struggles that you had before. It, it, it loosens even the power that sin had on your life. It begins to deteriorate all the things that began to eat you up in secret and in silence. All those things that began to fester and you couldn't handle it. When you began to give in to this primal opportunity to be in awe and to be in wonderment of him and to lay your baggage down because of that power. Your, your sin power, all that stuff that, that, that Satan just has a grip on your life, it begins to loosen that grip. And all the hidden places, when they begin to be exposed, it loosens all of that power. And you begin to be stronger and you begin to rely on the right things. He says, I died for the reality of you, not for the illusion of you. I died for who you really, really are. And I just wonder, has there been anything in your heart, in your mind, in your soul, where, where the Spirit of God is saying, there it is, there it is, this is it, where you're, when are you gonna come out of the shadows of your life? When are you gonna come out of the shadows of your life with this thing, with this sin that's just eating away at you? You gotta drop this pride and, and you have these three options. Yeah, you can, you can deny it, you can self-destruct, or you can just step out of the shadows and just do it. This is the dilemma for your morning. This is the dilemma is that this moment demands a response. It's not gonna work for me to put this off and say, I'm just gonna handle this later. I'm just gonna do this Later on, when I get alone in my, in my own time, I'm just gonna, no, 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 no. Because the moment's lost then. It's like, I, it's not appropriate for me to say, so there's your three options. I hope you guys have a great lunch. You're dismissed. It, can't, it doesn't call for that. It doesn't call for worship like that. And this, it, it can be manipulative sometimes to, to ask you to, to confess sin before your God. It can be manipulative sometimes to even use an altar call for the response of man. But, and there's tons of times that we don't do it, but, but today we're gonna do that. Today we're gonna have an altar call and today we're gonna have an opportunity for us to just lay our true selves before him because I'll be honest with you, when you're a pastor, you're supposed to put on a certain thing. And I say, no, I'm not gonna do it. And I get to follow a great lead pastor and another associate pastor who refused to do that and I'm just trying to let some of that rub off on me. I get to serve a wife who is very, very real. <laughs> she is very real with me and I love that and I wanna be like that and so I'm not trying to manipulate us, but... I want us to come out of the shadows in our hearts where you're bound, where you're struggling, where you feel isolated, where you feel like you're the only one who struggles with it and to just kneel before God, bringing whatever you have in your heart, whatever issues, whatever struggles, whatever pains, whatever things that you really have that's not fake, it's not an illusion, it is you. And you gotta hear my heart on this. This is the easiest thing to do right now would be to use this moment and to say, okay, see you later. God's word is so good. Just rest on this. I'll see you later. No, it, I need you to realize that we are all in a desperate need for a savior. All of us, every Sunday school teacher in here, every life group leader, every pastor, every ordained minister in here, we are in desperate need of a savior. And I'm in a tremendous need for a primal work in our souls. And I want us to be in awe of him. I want us to worship him like that. I want us to, to not care as much about everybody else's opinion as we normally do and to care so much more about what he thinks of you and to be desperate to come out of the shadows and into the light with who we really, really are. Because I promise you this, with all the sin that you struggle over, he's gonna meet you with the same grace and the same mercy. The things that none of us can meet each other with, he meets you with abundance in all of those things. That he is the, the God of forgiveness and the God of strength and the God, of, the God over sin. He is God. And to love him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, involves giving him everything in you, but it involves giving him the real stuff that's in you. All the things you hate about yourself, but also all the strengths that he's given you. Everything 
everything in you. So can you just stand with me? And I just want to pray over you right now. If you could just stand right where you're at. Just bow your heads and close your eyes. And I know some of you are brand new guests with us and you're not familiar with scripture and this is very new to you. This is very odd to you. I understand that, but I would rather be real with you than just give you some pastoral line. I am in desperate need of a savior because I have sin. And we have a church full of many, many wonderful people who are in desperate need of being in wonder of him, in awe of him, that he can handle this sin, he can handle these issues. I, I handle it all myself and I'm comfortable with that. Yeah, but when you, when you put on your facade, you don't need a savior. And the truth is that you desperately need him. Your marriage needs him. You need him to be a godly father and a godly son and a godly daughter. You need to be in awe of him. And so this morning, can you just do that? You step out of the shadows of your heart and say, Lord, I'm just, I don't need this illusion. I'm worn out and I'm tired and I can't handle it. Lord, I need you more than I need this illusion. And whatever that looks like, however that looks like in your heart right now to respond to him with worship and in all, can you do that? Can you do that? I'm not trying to manipulate you to pray a certain prayer. I'm not trying to manipulate you to come forward. I just want you to be real.